Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the New York Historical Society. I'm Louise Mirror, New York Historical's president and CEO, and it really is a great pleasure for me to see all of you in our beautiful Robert H. Smith Auditorium. Uh, I just want to remind you that we have a couple of great exhibitions opening next week, uh, Facades, which is a um, photographic essay by Bill Cunningham on uh, just that moment in New York when things were looking very far down and he saw a bit of optimism in the, uh, in the sad story. And also an exhibition called Black Fives on the basketball teams that uh, existed in New York and elsewhere before the NBA was integrated in 1950. So don't miss them. Return, please, during regular museum hours. And I um, do also want to make sure that everyone here this evening is a member of the New York Historical Society. Uh, members are extremely important to the work that we do. And uh, I hope that if you're not yet a member, that you will join. We have um, plenty of material, and my colleagues uh, outside will be happy to sign you up after the program. Tonight's program, The Great Debate, Edmund Burke, Thomas Paine, and the Birth of Right and Left, is a part of the Bernard and Irene Schwartz Distinguished Speakers series, which is the heart of our public programs. As always, I'd like to thank Mr. and Mrs. Schwartz for their great support, which has enabled us to bring so many fine historians and writers to this auditorium. Uh, I would also, we have several trustees with us this evening. I'd like to recognize one in particular, uh, our great past chairman and current chair of the executive committee, Roger Hertog, who has um, done so many things, but above all, has ensured that we maintain the highest standard of intellectual excellence in our programs, as is evidenced by the program this evening. Thank you so much, Roger, for everything that you've done. Our program this evening will last about an hour, and it will include a question and answer session. Uh, we'll ask audience members to line up behind standing microphones to my right and to my left. And uh, we do this so that the speakers on the stage can hear your questions and so that all of the audience members can hear your questions as well. Following the program, there will be a book signing with one of our speakers, Yuval Levin, and uh, those, uh, his book is available for purchase in our museum store, which is to my left. We are thrilled to welcome Yuval Levin to the New York Historical Society. Mr. Levin is the Hertog Fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center, specializing in healthcare, entitlement reform, economic and domestic policy, science and technology policy, political philosophy, and bioethics. Before joining EPPC, Mr. Levin served on the White House domestic policy staff under President George W. Bush where his work focused on healthcare, bioethics, and culture of life issues. He's the founding editor of National Affairs, a contributing editor to the Weekly Standard and National Review, as well as senior editor of EPPC's journal, The New Atlantis. His new book is The Great Debate, Edmund Burke, Thomas Paine, and the Birth of Right and Left. We are also delighted to welcome our moderator for the evening, William Crystal. Mr. Crystal is the founder and editor of the Weekly Standard. Before starting the magazine in 1995, Mr. Crystal served as chief of staff to Vice President Dan Quayle during the first Bush administration and to Education Secretary William Bennett under President Reagan. Before coming to Washington in 1985, Mr. Crystal was on the faculty of Harvard University's Kennedy School of Government and the Department of Political Science at the University of Pennsylvania. He was also a regular panelist on Fox News Sunday for a decade, and he now appears on many leading political talk shows. As always, I want to ask you to make sure that any device you have that makes any sound at all, like a cell phone, is switched off. And now, please join me in welcoming our guest to the stage. Well, thank you, Louise, and uh, it's good to be here with all of you, and good to be here with you all. I'll start by saying that this will not be a tough, hard-hitting interview, since I'm a friend of Yuval's and a big fan of this book. It's one of the best 
books I've read that was started as a doctoral dissertation. Usually that's damning with extremely Very big low praise. Standard, thank yeah, you. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but this is actually, you wouldn't even know it was a doctoral dissertation. And uh, <laughs> it's, it's both deep and interesting and uh, reader friendly and, and intelligible. So he, he managed to get rid of almost all the doctoral dissertation aspects of it in the, in the editing and cut it in half, right? So that was that's about right, yeah. No one, yeah, I'm not complaining about that, so that's good. <laughs> the, um, so why, I mean, you wrote this as a dissertation at the University of Chicago, but mm -hmm. why, why this? Why Burke and Payne? Well, uh, first of all, thank you very much, and thanks to all of you. Um, in a way, there are two ways to answer that question. Uh, in one sense, this is a book about the roots of our political divisions, and so it's a book that starts from the brute fact of left and right in our politics and tries, rather than taking it for granted, to think about where it comes from and what it is and what it means. And in that sense, I wanted to write it because I uh, am, in a tangential way, a combatant in some of our political debates and uh, live with that brute fact and wanted to better understand it. But as you say, it also began as a doctoral dissertation uh, in the Committee on Social Thought at the University of Chicago. And the story of how that happened is a, is a more complicated and peculiar story, I would say. I didn't come to Burke or to Payne in the usual way. I, I came to study political philosophy in graduate school um, with an interest in two sorts of questions. On the one hand, an interest in the limits of the social sciences, the limits of what they could teach us in a scientific way about society. Um, and so in a sense about the limits of the science of public policy. Um, and on the other hand, with an interest in the question of liberalism and the family. Um, how a society that has for its, its own political creation story a kind of state of nature idea of how society comes to be through uh, mature choosing adults coming together uh, by their own choice to form a society, what do you do about children? What do you do about the fact that most people come into these societies without choosing anything? It's a, it's a fact that's always presented a huge problem for liberal societies like ours, and I was interested in the question of how we think about it, how our way of thinking about rights and our, our individualism can work together with a belief in the importance of the family. Um, I came to graduate school to take a look at both of those questions, and I originally thought that they would lead me to Alexis de Tocqueville um, through John Locke in a certain sort of way. And um, that's because Tocqueville takes up especially the, the question of the family, which was the one that interested me the most, in a very interesting way and makes an argument that says, in fact, there is a big problem with how liberal societies think about the family. And the fact that we assume society begins in radical individualism means, among other things, that it's likely to end in radical individualism. And this is one of his worries about democratic society. But what I discovered in looking into the question and in looking into Tocqueville and to his influences is that there's actually another thread, another strand of the Western political tradition that is very powerful in practice in our own history, but that is not articulated very well most of the time. Another kind of liberalism, another way of thinking about our, our, our sort of society that actually makes a lot more room for the importance of the family on the one hand, and also for the limits of technical expertise and kind of scientific knowledge in society. And that, that more conservative thread uh, is best articulated and really almost only articulated fully by Edmund Burke. And so by thinking about what I found most interesting in Tocqueville, uh, I found myself reading Burke. And in reading Burke, it seemed to me that he was clearest and most uh, thorough in explaining himself when he was answering Thomas Paine. And this debate between Burke and Paine, which was a very real debate, uh, they knew each other, they exchanged letters, they answered one another's public writings uh, at great length. Some of their best writings and best thinking were done in answer to one another makes for an argument about the nature of the liberal society uh, at a time when certainly our liberal society was taking shape, but when really the idea of a free society uh, on the Anglo-American model was really beginning to form. And uh, Burke and Payne really argue about what that means in a way that's been very rare since then. I mean, I'll ask you just yeah, to lay out the basics of that argument, but I think one thing that struck me reading the book is when you read the book, it seems natural. Burke and Payne, left and right and left. And, but of course, it's a very original uh, thought. Uh, I mean, the typical account of American political thought, I would say, American political history finds the fundamental divisions in Federalist and Anti-Federalist, or Hamilton and Jefferson. There are all these different strains. Um, and then sort of 
traces those up through the ages. Herbert Crowley does that and many others. Um, the typical, I'd say, more European-focused division usually would do socialism and capitalism, yep. basically, you know, Adam Smith and Marx or whatever. And to find, I mean, I do think when you read the book, it seems natural, but it was, um, it, it, was, it was a breakthrough, I think, in a way, to see Burke and Payne as the origins of this. And you, you, you decided Payne was necessary despite, Burke himself complains, Yuval quotes Burke, complaining at one point was about, <laughs> that he's always associated with Payne, as if his own thought wasn't important enough to study in its own right. And he's just, what does he say? It's a funny form. Yeah, he, he says, he, he's, he's writing to a friend and says he's had enough of this citizen Payne, who everybody says hunts with me in couples. <laughs> um, it's true. He, he, Burke didn't think we needed Payne to understand him and would certainly have been offended by, by my project here. Uh, and, and thought it was misguided. But I, I think they clarify each other in a powerful way, and they clarify our politics, certainly not completely or simply, but they clarify our politics in a powerful way exactly because we are inclined to look for the sources of everything in our politics in the American founding. And so we ask ourselves, what were the divisions evident in the founding or in the constitutional debates? And we, we insist on saying those are where our politics come from. But what I try to argue in the book and what emerges from looking at that period is that the American founding happened at a, in an era that was already bitterly divided in, in, in Anglo-American politics, which of course were one at the time in, in many important respects. And the, the bitter divisions did present themselves around the French Revolution. The, French, the, the, the English and American understanding of the French Revolution was very partisan. Uh, it broke down along lines that are very recognizably right and left. The American Revolution itself did not. And within the revolutionary generation, there was a left and there was a right. And they, they were different ways of getting to the point that both sides argued that the British were denying the Americans the, the, the form of government they'd always had, which was a kind of liberal society. And even in the Declaration of Independence itself, it opens with really bold, quite radical statements of principle about equality and liberty and the purposes of government. And then it proceeds to this list of grievances, which basically come down to, we've had a great government here for 100 years, and now it's being taken away from us. Uh, it, it, the, the list ends with a complaint that the king is taking away our form of government, our existing form of government, which is a very strange argument for revolution. Uh, and that, that duality is always there in the revolutionary generation itself. And at the moment of the founding, even at the moment of the writing of the Constitution, there was a hope among many people that there wouldn't really be partisanship in American politics, that it would not break down into uh, Tory and Whig in the way that English politics had broken down. But that very quickly happened anyway. And the very same people who expressed that hope that there wouldn't be partisanship, 10 years later, are the most rabid partisans of all. And in fact, that partisanship emerged in part around the French Revolution, the debate of what the French Revolution meant, of what we had to make of it, of whether Americans should kind of claim it as their own, revealed tensions and divisions that were always there, uh, but that became much clearer around this really radical idea of revolution uh, in France. And so I think Burke and Payne can help us see some of the roots of our own politics because they were having a debate at around the same time as the American Revolution that was not exactly about the same questions as the American Revolution, but that were around questions that were very alive and important in American politics in that day. I mean, one of the great things about Yuval's book, I mean, we both come from a school, I would say, which emphasizes the close reading of texts and often presents, uh, people present their work as commentaries on text, which is fine and very illuminating sometimes. But one of the things I like most about your book is that it's, you do present their thought thematically so I think it's a little more accessible if one doesn't have the text out yeah. in front of... Well, you one. know, one of, the, one of the complicating things about reading Burke and Payne as, uh, as writers is that they were always writing about political things. Uh, they're, they're both political thinkers, I think rather deep ones, but they also were political actors. Uh, Burke was a politician. He, the whole time he was writing these wonderful things, he was running for office every two or three years. Uh, Payne was very involved in all of the events that he describes. He writes about the American Revolution from Philadelphia, from Trenton. He writes about the French Revolution from Paris. And his writings are always about events. And so to understand them as, as people engaged with ideas, you really have to pull their writings apart a little bit and try to find the themes, think about them thematically, and then try to apply what you learn back onto those events. So it's a different way of going about uh, political theory. So there are six, six thematic chapters, and I won't ask you to summarize all of them, but uh, I mean, they're very nature and history, justice and order, choice and obligation. You get a sense that 
these are pretty fundamental divisions between Burke and Payne that you try to lay out. I mean, would you care to pick one or two of them? And sort of <laughs> well, give us a sense of why you think this is a sort of the fundamental divide that does help explain today's right and left. Yeah, well, one of the striking things about them is how quickly they get to fundamental questions. And they both think that political debates, debates that happen in parliament, that, happens in, that happen in the newspapers, are really about deeper questions. And so what I try to do in the book is to lay those out in a thematic way. And I would say what you come out with are three large differences that, that keep presenting themselves over and over. One of them is a kind of dispositional difference. So everybody looks out at the world. It's an imperfect world, a world of good and bad, a society that has in it some things that are working and some that are failing. And the question is, what strikes you first, the good or the bad, the, the succeeding or the failing? And it's a striking thing about Burke that almost always he's first struck by the good. Burke's expectations of human beings are very low. He thinks we're fallen creatures. We're, uh, it takes a lot to make human societies work, to make human institutions work. The natural state is some kind of chaos. And so he's pretty much impressed with anything that succeeds in making people happy and orderly and allowing us to work together. So first, he says, it's amazing that society works. So let's learn from what works and try to apply that to what doesn't work. Pain, in a way, because he has higher expectations, because he believes in a certain kind of human perfectibility, because he's really struck by the optimism of the Enlightenment and shares in it, is first of all outraged at what isn't working. He looks out at society and says, it's totally inexcusable that in this day and age, we have to live with poverty and we have to live with war. You would think that we would be beyond this by now. And so he wants really to start over because he thinks that if you build things on the right set of principles, on the right kinds of understanding of politics, you won't have to live with poverty and with war. These things really can be solved. He's a real utopian optimist, almost utopian optimist of the Enlightenment. Uh, and so their dispositions are fundamentally different. Burke goes at the world by saying, first of all, let's appreciate what is working here and try to build on it. Payne says, Let's understand that this is a huge failure and see what we can do to change it. I'd say that's the first theme that again and again in their different debates arises. The second is about their views of what kind of knowledge is available to us to understand social problems. Both of them, in a sense, were in the business of solving problems. Burke was a politician. Uh, he always had to offer his voters solutions, ways of understanding how things could be better. Payne, of course, was a real social reformer and a radical one. And both of them thought that society could be improved. But Paine, again, because he was an Enlightenment thinker, because he was an optimist about human possibilities, thought that there could be a kind of science of society, an almost technical science of society, and that one of the purposes of government was to apply technical expertise, to understand how problems could be solved, what they were, what it would take to solve them, how to do things differently, and then apply that to society, that that is one of the things we ought to expect of our government. Burke thought society was always going to be much too complicated for things to work that way, and the technical knowledge was never going to be the, the, the sort of knowledge we can use in social and political life. He believed that instead, something more like social knowledge, dispersed knowledge, that was contained in people's experiences, that was contained in the, the shape of our social institutions, in how we had lived over generations, and in what people at the ground level facing, confronting problems themselves together with one another were doing would help us solve social problems. And so he believed rather than in institutions that would apply technical expertise, he believed in institutions that would channel social knowledge, disperse knowledge, institutions like markets, uh, but also like communities and families and religious institutions and, and local governments and to a certain extent national governing institutions that worked from the bottom up. And so a different way of thinking about what kind of knowledge could be available to us and how it could be used. And finally, I think there's a recurring difference between them about the relationship between the, the, the present and the past and the future in society. Paine, as a great believer, again, in Enlightenment principles, in individual liberty, believed in liberating people from obligations they didn't choose. He knew, of course, you couldn't do that entirely, but he thought one of the important purposes of government was to free people from unchosen obligations, and that included freeing them from the burdens of the past. Every generation, he thought, should be allowed to determine its own destiny, should be allowed to, to create its own world anew, and should have as much freedom as the first generation of human beings. Uh, Burke always saw human beings as embedded in a social reality that they didn't necessarily choose. 
a reality that flows out from the shape of the family itself, that begins with the fact that all of us are born uh, into a world we didn't choose. And again, this, is, this relates to how I got here. Uh, the, the, the final chapter of the book is about this question of generations, and for me was the first question with Burke, because he offers a very unusual and original answer to that question. He argues that the relationship between the generations is not only the nexus of society, but is the model for all social institutions. And so we ought to understand things on the model of generational continuity and inheritance, slow, gradual change that builds on what we have, that accepts the best of our inheritance and makes the most of it and makes more of it. And so I would say these three kinds of differences, whatever they're arguing about, more or less come down to these kinds of disagreements. One of the things I liked about the book is that I thought it really corrected, without bothering, you didn't bother to address this directly, but I think two cartoon versions of Burke that are pretty dominant in America have been in the last few decades, really. One is the, I'll call it the Russell Kirk Burke. Russell <laughs> Kirk was a great conservative thinker, but kind of a high Tory, uh, very much you know, pro-old regime, monarchy, church, tradition, establishment. And he, in his very influential book, written, what, 50, 60 years ago now, established Burke as the kind of fountainhead of modern conservatism, which isn't entirely wrong, of course, but made Burke into a real Tory uh, worshiper of the, of the old ways. Uh, and Burke was, in fact, a Whig, not a Tory, and, and quite a modernist in many ways. The other cartoon version, I'd say, is not among... So that the conservative Burke is too conservative, if right. you will. Then there's another Burke, which is Barack Obama's Burke. I mean, didn't, I think President Obama during the campaign used to try to reassure conservatives that he was kind of a Burkean. Our friend David Brooks, even, much as I hate to say a critical word about him, sort of fell for this and at one point was arguing that, Burke, that Obama was a Burkean. And that Burke is sort of a, a liberal who vaguely understands that things are a little more complex than the most simple-minded liberals and occasionally cites someone who's not just a, a you know, a 20 and yeah. 19, you know. A, and a pure incrementalist. It's all about the pace of things. Right. It's right. going slightly more slowly than a really radical liberal. Yeah. But your Burke is neither Barack Obama's Burke yeah. nor Russell Kirk's Burke. And well, you know, there's a danger in reading Burke that almost everybody falls into, and that I'm sure I fell into as well, of seeing in him what you, what you would like to be. Um, and so Russell Kirk who found himself in need of a, a fountain for his kind of conservatism, uh, found it in Burke. And, you know, he knew Burke very well. His writing suggests that he was a very careful reader of Burke, but he was very selective and wanted to make Burke just the kind of uh, almost apolitical, agrarian, cultural conservative um, that Russell Kirk himself was and thought that others Hostile ought to, to be. modern commercial society. Yeah, basically turned off by, by capitalism uh, and just very concerned about the future not being enough like the past. Um, this, this really isn't Burke at all, uh, even though it can be patched together from quotations of Burke uh, and from certain kinds of reading of his... Burke, as you say, was a Whig, and he really was a Whig. Burke was a reformer. First of all, he was much more interested in politics than Russell Kirk. He was a politician. Uh, he thought what happened in politics was extremely important to the life of a society. And he was also, he, Burke believed firmly that the present was better than the past. His, his ideal was not in the past. But he was concerned that in order for the future to be better still, we had to preserve the ways by which the present became better than the past. And so he was, he was worried to sustain those ways in which society had changed gradually uh, but positively over time. And he thought that uh, he was a reformer in his own day and a reformer of a sort that uh, would not have been welcome in the Tory party. Uh, he was a reformer of the criminal law, which he took to be much too heavy-handed and oppressive. He was an opponent of slavery. Uh, an original signatory of the Wilberforce petition that ended up uh, many years later ending slavery in the British Empire. Um, he was opposed to the British treatment of the natives of India uh, and in some respects a critic of the British Empire as an empire, um, always out of concern that what was happening in those instances was a failure to live up to the principles of the British Constitution. That is, and by constitution he meant not a written constitution, but the British system, the British tradition. Um, and so for that reason, too, he was always a great defender of religious minorities, especially of, of Catholics uh, in, in Britain and in Ireland. Um, and he was a reformer. Now, this is where the other caricature of Burke comes from, which is people say Burke was really uh, an outright liberal, but wanted to go a little more slowly. 
Um, and so people who today want to go a little more slowly in, uh, in reforming away from the liberal welfare state will very often point to Edmund Burke, and, and President Obama has done this himself, and others have done it about him, to say, well, we don't want to change too fast. The, 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 the left looks at Paul Ryan's budget, and they say, well, that's just too radical. What we want is a more gradual, uh, a, a, a more conservative approach to social change. That's not Burke either, because Burke's incrementalism was always in the service of a vision of society. Uh, incrementalism without a goal, without an endpoint, is, uh, is a very bad thing in politics. It just lets you get pushed around. Um, and Burke, if, if you say nothing else about him, he didn't like to get pushed around, uh, and it wasn't his way. He had a vision of society. He had a vision of what government was for um, that, was, that left a lot of room for, for social reform and for political reform, for social progress, as we would understand it. But really, room was at the essence of it. I think if you would argue about, if, if you try to explain Burke's vision of government, one way to understand it through the Burke-Payne debate is that Payne always uses metaphors of motion. He thinks about politics as going somewhere. Uh, and, and his language of progress, of forward, of go, of don't stop, is something we would recognize from our own politics. Burke's metaphors are all about space. Um, they're all about opening room. And he understands the purpose of government as creating a space and sustaining a space for society to thrive, a space between the individual and the state. That's where he sees society existing, um, and that's where he sees it having room to thrive. It can move in different directions within that space. He didn't think there was a single direction to history, and in that sense, uh, he was less of a Whig than some of the Whigs of even his own day. Um, he didn't think that all change would be in the same direction. He thought that changes in government policy should be directed to sustaining that space and so should respond to threats to that space. So when he saw the, the place of the monarchy in the British system being threatened, he became a monarchist for a time. Uh, and around the time of the French Revolution, he could easily be mistaken for one. But when he saw the place of parliament being threatened, uh, he, was, he was in every way a Whig and a defender of the, uh, of the prerogatives of parliament and of the democratic part of the British system. He believed in sustaining that space. And within that space, politics happens and the life of the larger society happens. Uh, and that is, I think, a living vision of politics. And it's a vision of the free society, of a liberal society. It's very much a conservative vision, but it's not a vision that we have a ready argument for. And so conservatives since him, and certainly in our time, when conservatives try to get philosophical, uh, to get theoretical, we have a tendency to reach for radical theories, not for Burke's kind of vision of what government is for. And so we, we pull out those first few sentences of the Declaration and try to build a conservative uh, edifice on those foundations. And it turns out to be pretty complicated. Uh, in a certain sense, it's what you have to do, but it should be done with the aid of a kind of Burkean understanding, I think, of, of government as existing to leave room for society to thrive. I think that's the best way to understand the U.S. Constitution, for example. And it's, in general, a way to think about that strand, that other thread of our politics that exists much more in practice than in theory in our society. I mean, I think your book liberates Burke um, in a way from the monarchy and the lords and the particular institutions of the particular society, which, of course, he was attached to and which he was concerned to defend. But I mean, I suppose maybe that's one reason in America he's always been a little orthogonal in a way to American political thought. It seems so much to be about England, yeah. you know, and we don't have lords. Yeah, and, and we're uncomfortable getting help from a kind of well-meaning foreign cousin. Um, we don't like to. We don't like to look. So he was a supporter of our revolution. He was a supporter of American independence. Uh, he never called it a revolution. Never ever called it a revolution. Um, was very careful not to do so, and uh, and he willfully ignored some elements of it that were actually quite prominent elements. We know that Burke was present in Parliament the day that the Declaration of Independence was read aloud to the members, for example. But he never mentions it in anything that we have. Uh, the name Thomas Jefferson never arises, in, not even in his private letters, let alone in his public writings. He was intensely interested in America. He knew a lot about the great figures in America, wrote a lot about them, said a lot about them, but not about that. And, you know, it was harder for him to deal with that side of our revolution, and he preferred to think of the, of the break with America as a kind of civil war, which is how he often described it. And he thought the Americans were justified, that the policy of the British government 
uh, was unwise and in some respects unjust, and that at the end of the day, it, it was Parliament that brought things to a point where it just wasn't possible to reconcile anymore, and he defended the Americans at that point. And even modern American conservatism, you know, Ronald Reagan, the most successful, prominent uh, modern American conservative, the one, I guess, American president, you could say, really unambiguously came out of the conservative movement, quoted Thomas Paine yes. a lot. Not just quoted Thomas Paine. He quoted the least conservative thing that anybody's ever said um, in the English language. He quoted Paine's line that we have it in our power to begin the world over again. And he loved that line. It's all over, uh, it's all over his speeches and in the early years when he was writing them himself. I don't blame his speechwriters for it. Um, in a sense, what Reagan always seemed to mean when he used that line was he wanted to call the American people to do great things again. And so... He wanted to say, we shouldn't imagine that all of, all of America's greatness is behind us and to awaken a kind of spirit of the American Revolution. But he also was a believer in the principles, of course, as we all should be, of the American Revolution. And for American conservatives, there is the unique challenge of, of conserving a society that was founded in a revolution. Uh, and even if our disposition is conservative in a Burkean sense and our attitude about the knowledge and power we have available to us in politics and our attitude about the place of the family and our relationship to the past are conservative. What we're conserving is a society that has always had within it a very lively radical strand and that probably would never have come to be without that, that radical strand. Um, and conservatives defend the whole and defend the best of what uh, it's given us. I quoted Payne in an editorial, I think just last week, um, urging conservatives to fight something or other, probably a lot of things uh, that are going on in Washington. <laughs> and and Payne's rhetoric, I mean, when you read the yeah. crisis, the stuff he wrote, and he wrote in extreme haste and you know, sitting in some freezing tent, I suppose, yeah. in Trenton, is really fantastic. Payne, Payne was an incredible writer of political rhetoric. He, you know, Payne had five years of school. Uh, he, he, got through, he got through the fifth grade. Uh, his parents just had no money. He grew up very poor and was entirely self-educated beyond that in an incredible way. And uh, his life story just was never meant to take him uh, where, it got, where it took him. He, he, he was poor. He followed in his father's profession as a stay maker. He, he was in the business of making ladies' dresses. And um, at a certain point, he, his life broke down. His wife died in childbirth and really overcome with grief, frankly. He gave up on his life and left his home, became a kind of itinerant. He took a job as a tax collector, and he got involved in a dispute with the government about how much the tax collectors were getting paid. And he was such a great writer and was understood by his fellow tax collectors as such an impressive figure that they asked him to write a pamphlet that they could give to their members of parliament about paying tax collectors better. And he wrote this pamphlet, which is an incredible piece of writing, and just gave up his job and went to London and became a lobbyist for better pay for tax collectors. He lost. He not only lost his job, but he, they didn't get better pay. Uh, he went bankrupt. But he was introduced by a mutual friend to Benjamin Franklin, who was the American ambassador, the ambassador of the American colonies at the time in London. And Franklin was always a recruiter for, for the American cause. Uh, and he said to Payne, you know, you're in the wrong you're in the wrong place in life. You should go to America. Don't tell him you were a tax collector. Just show him what you can do. And that's what he did. He went to Philadelphia, and within a few months, he was the editor of the Pennsylvania Magazine and became a very, very important figure very quickly in the intellectual life of Philadelphia and a very important and powerful voice in, uh, in making the case for the American Revolution. He wrote Common Sense, which really persuaded people to support the revolution, and then wrote the crisis papers, as you say, following the army. He, he followed... Uh, first General Washington and then uh, some lesser generals basically around New Jersey and, and New York and camped with the army and wrote the crisis papers. These are the times that try men's soul. Some of his best writing uh, was done around a campfire in the cold uh, and it's absolutely astonishing. I'll bring you back to Burke and then we'll, we'll take some questions. The, uh, when I wrote this little editorial I got an email from a friend who had served in the Reagan administration and was sort of the last True believe, not the last, but as a, a true believing Reaganite. I mean, personally, it worked for Ronald Reagan even before he was president, so I had a kind of personal relationship with him that most of us obviously didn't have, even if we worked in that administration a little. And he said, it was great that you quoted Thomas Paine. I, I know all these well-educated people from Chicago and all are, <laughs> are rediscovering Burke and telling us we have to read Burke, but I love Paine, you know? And I, and I want to ask about that. Yeah. So, I mean, well, that is sort of a strain of, of modern American conservatism. Absolutely. It's a strain of America. And... 
I mean, how does one, can, I mean, how Burkean can American conservatism yeah. be and how can it be, I guess? Well, first of all, Reagan loved to quote Burke too, and especially about freedom, which Burke always described as a balanced thing, as freedom and order, uh, and Reagan loved those lines as well. But you're right, there's a real Tom Paine theme in American conservatism. First of all, I think we should love Tom Paine. He was a very important figure in our revolution. Uh, he was on the right side at, at a time that it mattered. He took real risks and made real important and true, I think, arguments uh, at that time. He was a radical, and you know, there's a certain way you have to love radicals. Uh, you have to take what you can from them, but not too much. And I, I think at the end of the day, Paine's argument for the American Revolution was not our argument for the American Revolution. And I don't mean conservatives, but Americans. It was not even Thomas Jefferson's argument, uh, and it was not the founding generation's argument. Paine was much more radical than they were, and really saw the revolution as a much more radical thing than it was. But Paine's energy and his tone and his resistance to authority and his discomfort with being told what to do and with seeing anybody else being told what to do uh, is very important to the American spirit. So I get a lot of this kind of criticism from the other side, from, from scholars of the period that say, well, why are you treating Paine like he's Burke? Um, you know, Paine wrote pamphlets. He was a hothead. He went around screaming, and uh, Burke was a kind of thinker. He, he sat in his study and wrote about things he'd never seen. That's what we're supposed to do. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, these Christians are both right, but I think, there is, uh, I, I, I think there's a lot to be learned about each of them from the other, and there's a lot to be learned about our way of thinking about politics from the two of them together. And say a little more. I see we're setting up the microphone, so if you want to begin lining up, we'll take questions in just five minutes. But uh, about Burke and, and contemporary American conservatism, I guess I mean I read Burke in college, maybe even a tiny bit before, and I, I loved the reflections. But I can't say it then stayed with me very much. I mean, I sort of did in fact read Tocqueville, and that influenced me more in thinking about how one could shape democracy in a way without you know within democracy and alleviate some of the problems and. Uh, try to strengthen certain aspects uh, within a democratic horizon. Yeah. Um, I mean, do you have a view on particular things Burke teaches us that we wouldn't otherwise, that we would have trouble otherwise yeah. coming up with, well, either I think, from within America or from within, from Tocqueville or others of that, of that sort? I, I, I think, um, first of all, I, in a way, this gets back to where we started, which is I would say that the, the relationship between Burke and contemporary conservatism is not, and between Paine and today's left, is not a genealogical relationship. It's not that today's conservatism is descended from Burke, but rather that the right and left are dispositions that arise almost inevitably in a free society that is shaped like ours. This, this, this division into dispositions, into seeing the best and seeing the worst, this, these ways of thinking about knowledge and power and family and society uh, can't help but come up. And so the left and right exist in every generation, and what's, what's powerful and important about Burke is that he articulated the right in a way that's very rare, and that's been very rare since. And I think he taught a lot of people who've done it since what it is exactly that they're, that they're thinking about and what, what they're directing their dispositions toward, including Tocqueville, who was quite influenced by Burke, although actually only after writing Democracy in America. He hadn't read Burke before uh, he came to America and only read him when he wrote his great book about the French Revolution. Um, I think what Burke offers is a different way of understanding what the liberal society is. So the normal way we think about it is the liberal society is the application of Enlightenment principles. Uh, these principles were discovered, they were new in the, in the Enlightenment, they were a break from what came before them in Western civilization, and our society exists to apply them and to become more and more like them, and so in a sense to progress in their direction. That's a progressive view of what the liberal society is. What Burke says is, the liberal society is an achievement of countless generations of gradual improvement, especially in Britain, that by the time of the Enlightenment had arrived in practice at a living society that did an incredible job of balancing liberty and order. And that's what Paine's view values about liberalism too. But Burke says that's not a discovery that happened 100 years before I was born. That's an, an achievement of many, many generations working slowly over time. And the way for us to improve on it is as they did, to take the best of it and keep it and use what we learned from the best of it to improve the worst of it. And so th that's a way of thinking about the liberal society in which the mission we have is to conserve what's best about it and use that to make it better, uh, a conservative view of the liberal society. Tocqueville has that view. Tocqueville 
begins democracy in America with this incredible history of democracy. It starts roughly with Jesus Christ. Um, and he, he says this amazing thing. He says, if you look in on France, every 10 years, starting in the 13th century, you'll find that it's more democratic every time, a little more. He doesn't even stop to notice the Enlightenment in telling this story. John Locke is nowhere to be seen in that story. N nothing, nothing is particularly important about what happened in the 16th and 17th centuries. He tells Burke's story, which is democracy has come to be gradually by slow improvement in progress and, and, and thinking and rethinking. I think that way of understanding our society is a much better foundation for what conservatives at least are trying to build than the more radical view, uh, which makes more sense for progressives. And so I think there is a real right and left, both of them liberal. They can live together because their vision of what a good society is is actually quite similar to one another. But it's not identical, and it answers particular policy and political questions quite differently. So I think it, Burke offers us a way of understanding where that comes from and what that looks like. Yeah, I was at a conference on the thought of the late James Q. Wilson this last weekend, and we had a sort of weirdly similar discussion. I mean, Jim, Jim Wilson's work was both, he used all of modern social science, so he believed in sort of modern instruments of research, empirical research, uh, progress in research. He sometimes would talk that way. We don't know yet enough about X, Y, or Z, but also deeply skeptical in a Burkean way of ultimately how much we could learn and how much one could have a sort of apply rational, you know, uh, yeah. uh, control to a society and, and planning and, and that sort yeah. of thing. It's a different kind of liberalism. Rather than saying the alternative to, to progressivism is reactionism, is rejecting the future and looking to some ideal that's in the past, it's a different way of thinking about how to make the future better. And the founders, I mean, this came up in the conference out there with uh, John DiIulio, Harvey Mansfield made this point, the Federalist, at the, one, the, the great founding document after the Declaration of the Constitution itself, on the one hand, praises this new political science, which is going to help teach us how to set up a stable and flourishing liberal democracy, which hadn't been done in the past. But on the other hand, the Federalist itself is very skeptical, of yeah. course, about, I mean, it's very, has a slightly dark view or skeptical view of human nature. Ambition has to be set against ambition. You can't uh, expect parchment barriers to work. You can't even have a real fundamental understanding exactly of what's going to happen. So you have to set up a system that channels people in certain ways. And very wary of idealism and utopian. I mean, in Federalist 6, Hamilton has those amazing lines about how, why should we think that the, the attempt at perfection will succeed here if it didn't succeed in all, and he goes through a list of, you know, all the republics that have been tried before. He seems to think the secret is just not to expect that. Um, and so I think that's, th that strand is very powerful in the Constitution. I think the Constitution was written in a moment that was quite conservative in the early republic, unusually conservative between the real revolution and the Jeffersonian decades, which were both much more radical than the time in which the Constitution itself was written. Questions, comments? Yes, sir. Begin here, and then we'll go here. My name is Jim Mackin. I'm a volunteer here at the New York Historical Society. We have um, George Washington's cot from Valley Forge upstairs, and with it goes this incredible story that Washington read Thomas Paine to the troops. Yeah. Could General Washington have read Edmund Burke to the troops? <laughs> yes, I think so. Edmund Burke was, as we said, a, a, uh, a supporter of American independence and made a couple of just incredibly good speeches about America in Parliament in those debates, the, the, the theme of which, the most important point of which was, the Americans are great believers in liberty, and we shouldn't underestimate what that means to how we should govern them if we're going to govern them. Uh, he really had, I think, a great grasp of what was unique about the American character as opposed to the British character, what was American about them in particular. And there are certainly passages there Washington could have read. It would have helped them to know that there are some people in London who support their cause. But Tom Paine was much better to read to the troops at Valley Forge, who needed to know why they should go on despite the cold and the hunger. And Washington really did do that. He read the crisis papers, the first three crisis papers, himself to the troops at Valley Forge. But I think the Burke speeches were well known in America, oh, yeah. I mean, given the time, you know, it took some time to get across the ocean. Yeah. So it wasn't they were it, it's not in the as ridiculous a, a thought as one might think. I mean, Washington wouldn't have read them, but I think that yeah. they were actually reprinted and the colonists thought it was very good that a major Whig yeah. was defending them uh, against King George and Lord North. Yeah. Sir. I'm Jim Pasinich. I'm a docent here also. Um, the British government, the parliament, the king, the people could not conceive of a government of, by, and for the people ever succeeding. 
Uh, yet Burke was a, a fan in favor of government and uh, American independence. Did he agree with that thinking? Well, Burke was a Whig, and so that meant that he was a believer in the democratic part of the mixed regime that the British had, um, meaning he was a believer in the prerogatives of, par of Parliament and thought that Parliament was the best working element of the British system. He didn't think the system would work very well if Parliament was the only element. Uh, and so he was not a believer in total democracy. He was a great believer in dividing power uh, and channeling power. And so uh, I would say he was more impressed with the American Constitution than with the Declaration of Independence. Um, Paine was less so, really. Paine was not a believer in, in uh, dividing power, was not a believer in the bicameral legislature or in checks and balances. He never quite says this, but he was probably an opponent of the Constitution. Um, <clears throat> he's careful not to say so, and he was in Paris when it was debated, but a lot of things he said before and after suggest that he thought that it was uh, much too careful about empowering democracy. And uh, Burke probably would have liked that part of it a lot better. And I suppose, I mean, to be a Burkean in America, I mean, Burke's whole thought su suggests that you would have different arrangements in different no. countries and based on the organic development in those countries. So it's not as if Burke would, would have wanted to impose a right. monarchy or an aristocracy. And he's careful to say so. His solution is not the British system everywhere. His criticism of the French revolutionaries is that there is a lot of material for them in French history to work with, that there are times they can look to he says, you're right, the last king was an absolute disaster, and the, the, the old regime is not the future. But there are raw materials in your own history that you can look to, that you can build on, that you can draw on patriotism for, rather than start over from these abstract principles that don't really have much to do with, uh, with, with what the French have known. More questions? Yeah, so maybe go to the bike, I think. If Curious, and this might be slightly off topic, but how do you rec reconcile the sort of lofty discourse of political ideas with slavery and Jim Crow, et cetera, et cetera? Yeah. Well, sure. That, that's one of the great questions, of course, of, uh, that anybody thinking about American history has to think about. Um, Burke and Paine themselves were both adamant opponents of slavery, um, and uh, Paine became known first in Philadelphia as an opponent of slavery, as a writer against slavery. Burke, at a time when it was very out of fashion to be uh, an opponent of slavery in Parliament, um, joined with just a few other Whigs led by William Wilberforce to sign a petition that eventually led to a law that, uh, as I mentioned before, that ended the slave trade in the British Empire. Um, they both thought that the existence of the institution of slavery alongside these great debates about, uh, about human liberty was preposterous. And... Um, you know, the, the, Burke is quite critical of slavery in writing about America. He, he mostly loves America. As a young man, he very much wanted to go to America. But he is always careful in writing about it to say that he thinks slavery is at odds with just about everything else there is to say about America. And I think that was true. Well, then how does uh, present-day conservatism, I suppose, sort of, what does it glean from that now? I mean, you can understand the liberal side. Yeah. You know, what it means to say that you want to... To, to draw on the best of what you are to address the worst of what you are is that it ought to be possible to look to, to look to the principles of liberty and to the practice of liberty to show ourselves where we've been wrong. And one of the, one of the services that conservatism ought to provide a society is a corrective service, is to, is to explain to itself ways in which it needs to change. Obviously, in American history, a lot of those have had to do with race, and in some ways, they still do. Okay. But I suppose Burke would have defended the Constitution making certain compromises with slavery as it already existed uh, for the sake of keeping the union together, perhaps. I think that's possible. Uh, but, you know, his defense of compromise was always with an end in mind. Right. Compromise for its own sake uh, is, not, is not Burkeanism. And so compromise for the sake of eventually ending slavery in a, in a, in a Lincolnian sense sounds a little Burkean. It's not something he said, but it's not a question he had to deal with, I guess. I think it's quite reasonable to think that he would have been in favor of it. But it was, I mean, ironically, it was Washington who was the only, you know, founder who freed, the only president who freed the slaves. Jefferson didn't. Yeah. Um, and it was the Jeffersonian party that became the defender of slavery. Somewhat, yeah, right. you could say, by accident, but not entirely by and, accident. And by a long path, too. But uh, and The Hamiltonian party was the, by far the more, right. the, the, quote, conservative party, the more Burkean party, yeah. was by far the, 
more hostile to settle. Well, and Lincoln's argument at the end of the day was really an argument with people who said, let's just let democracy settle this. Right. Uh, his argument was, was an argument that said there are certain things that are beyond the reach of democracies and ought to be. Um, and that's certainly an argument that Burke himself made quite often uh, against more radical voices that at the end of the day said society should be what the majority wants it to be. Within reason, I think that's true, and Burke seemed to think it was true, but he also thought there were times when it just wasn't true. And also an argument, I think, against the notion that inevitably scientific progress would just doom slavery. I mean, that's a beautiful letter of Jefferson, who was also, like Payne, a great writer. Uh, you know, all eyes are opening to the rights of man, and some are not born, saddled, and spurred, ready to be ridden by others, et cetera, the progress of science. Yeah. But of course, he wrote that in 1826, just before he died, but the progress of science, so to speak, uh, didn't help the cause of the anti-slavery cause, and science was used in defense of slavery in the 1840s and 50s, and used in defense of eugenics in the 1920s and 30s. And I think there, Burke's skepticism about progress might have put him on firmer ground in opposing something like slavery than people who just thought, we don't have to worry, you know, it's going to be taken care of by yeah. history or progress. Yes, I have a question. How do you reconcile uh, Thomas Paine and Edmund Burke uh, and uh, the like basically proponents of a revolution to overthrow the king, who was overtaxing them to death with uh, current administration that basically governs by fiat, uh, you know, issuing orders, ignoring uh, Congress, uh, basically uh, governing by executive order, or basically if he uh, doesn't like part of the statue, uh, then he will delay it, etc. Uh, do we get one king instead of the other? Thank you. Well, I think um, one way to think about that is to return for a minute to their different views of the kind of thing that the U.S. Constitution is. I think that um, Burke, in his belief in the importance of channeling power and dividing power, uh, was, again, a believer in creating a space for society to thrive. And so he... Th a Burkean looking at the American Constitution would see it as a liberating document because what it does is it creates that space and sustains that space. It created a government and then set up boundaries around the power of that government so that its purpose was always to sustain a space around society. Uh, Paine, was, Paine viewed those kinds of restraints as restraints. Uh, he viewed them as constraining, not as liberating, because they did keep the government from essentially helping society advance from doing what the majority wanted or from doing what was, uh, what was demanded by the, the ideal of progress. And I think people who have followed in that tradition and in the progressive tradition have tended to see the Constitution as constraining, as a restraint. You see it in Woodrow Wilson, you see it in the contemporary uh, left, you see it in the entire progressive tradition. The, the Constitution is seen as a bridle, as standing in the way of social progress and of government moving things in the right direction. Um, they're both right. The Constitution does both of those things. And the question is, what you think is more important? Is it more important at the end of the day to sustain that space and so to sustain the rule of law, which means really that you also have to accept the fact that sometimes you just don't get to do what you want, uh, even if you're sure it's right, even if a majority agrees with you, sometimes you just don't get to do what you want. And part of living in a free society means accepting that. Um, you know, I, I think that's a challenge for a lot of people, and not only on the left, though today it seems to be more of a challenge for more people on the left than the right. Is that Andrew? Um, how important was his Irishness to, uh, to Burke? How important was religion? And also, how important was his concept of himself as an aesthete, um, the concepts of the sublime that he writes about? Uh, when he talks to Boswell and Johnson, it's, uh, it's very much aesthetics yeah. rather than... Uh, Overtly yeah. politics. Very important and, and quite connected. So Burke was an Irishman. He was born in Ireland. Uh, became, of course, a great British statesman. Um, his, his Irish upbringing was extremely important to him because it showed him, among other things, that life was a lot more complicated in practice than in theory. The life that he led growing up should have been impossible in theory. Um, he was born in a mixed family. His father was a Protestant. His mother was a Catholic at a time when that was rare, it was not unheard of, but it was rare in, in Irish life. Uh, he was educated by, uh, in a Quaker school, again, at a time when religious divisions between Protestants and uh, Catholics, and uh, within Protestantism, between the established religion, his religion, uh, and the dissenting faiths like the Quakers, ran very deep uh, and were very problematic in Irish society. But what Burke saw, what Burke lived, was that 
these kinds of differences can become moot through people just living together with one another, trusting one another, knowing one another. Society worked not only uh, by sort of dogmas aligning, but by people actually knowing each other and living together. And he was always left with this sense that life is really complicated, that things can make sense to you on paper, and then you get to actual human beings, and for better sometimes and for worse sometimes, it just doesn't work that way. Um, that's a very, very important principle of Burke's thought throughout his life. Uh, and religion in the same way. Burke was religious, but his political thought is really not particularly religious thought. Uh, and in fact, a lot of his writing about religion is quite utilitarian or sounds so. Uh, he sees religion as very useful to, the, to, to, to society. And although we now know from his private letters, uh, which really, his letters have only been available since 1948. And so everything written about him before that, including some wonderful 19th century biographies, turn out to have been really wrong in a lot of ways. Um, and the, the private man was quite religious, uh, it seems to have been, from what we can tell. And uh, it just didn't show all that much in his, in his political writing. But it was very important to his sense of how society functioned. Again, he thought it couldn't just be technical. It couldn't just be uh, scientific solutions to social problems. People's lives were much deeper than that. And that has to do with, with his interest in aesthetics, his interest in how the sublime should be important to the statesman, um, which is not the way a lot of our statesmen, if we can call them that, uh, tend to think and speak. Let's take two quick questions, final questions, since you've been standing patiently by the mics, and then Yuval will answer them both, and we'll close. Okay, um, I was, uh, one of the things that struck me very much and I appreciated in your text was the extent to which it was the French Revolution that first separated Burke and Paine, and it wasn't unique to them. I mean, the Angloman and Galloman in France, in fact, the terms left and right refer to where you sat yep. in the French during the French Revolution in the Assembly. The, Adams and Jefferson split on the French Revolution. Could you speak to that, why the French Revolution was so important in creating what had been latent perhaps before, but no one had ever thought of a left and right before the French Revolution? Yep. Excellent question. Okay. And this one here, final. I'll let you will answer both at once. Okay, thank you. Um, first of all, thank you for the National Review. I really enjoy reading it. Uh, and the Weekly Standard. But my question has to do, I think it's in the Federalist Papers where uh, Madison argues that democracy may function differently depending upon the size of a society. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering how the Burke and Payne principles might apply to that uh, question. Okay. Federalist 10 and the French yeah. Revolution. Two uh, small questions. Just little tiny questions at the end here, here. no problem. <laughs> uh, the French Revolution, uh, that's a great question. And I think the, the, the basic answer to that, so it's true, the, 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 the terms left and right Comes, come from where people sat in the French assembly at the beginning of the French Revolution, where the most radical elements sat to the left of the speaker. And, and the press, actually the British press, started referring to them as the left and the right, based on literally where they were sitting. Um, the French Revolution, where, where liberal society in the British experience had tended to contain both of the left and the right, <clears throat> and our society certainly has, include them both, the French Revolution was an attempt to turn one of them alone into the organizing principle of a society. It was really the radicalism of what, in, in many respects, became the left uh, that was being put into practice. And so the French Revolution presented radicalism as a yes or no question. And so within liberal societies, within British society and American society, it forced people to take sides, to say, what kind of liberal are you? which the American Revolution and the constitutional debates, and really in some ways our politics since then, haven't always done. Specific issues do, and so you see divisions along specific issues, but everybody can believe in our political system because it makes room for them both. The French Revolution didn't leave room for Burke's kind of way of thinking about society at all. It wanted an absolute break. Uh, it was on Paine's side of the dispositional question, of the science question, of the family question, everything. It was radicalism. And so what you think of that really depends on whether you are on the left and the right. And the French Revolution forced people to take positions in Britain and in America that really helped to create the left and right as distinct parties. Burke writes at the end of his life that the, the future of British politics is going to be uh, divided between two kinds of Whigs. Between this, and this is the only time he comes close to referring to himself as a conservative. He says there'll be a party of conservation and there'll be a party of Jacobins. Uh, and they both come from the Whigs, and that's who they are. And he was right in a lot of ways. That's, that's what ended up happening there and here. Um, 
To the second question, so it's true Madison in, in, uh, in Federalist 10 makes an argument that we, we usually describe half of this argument, which is to say democracy can work in a large society. That also means that he thinks it can't work, not only in a small society, but at a lower level of government. So Madison really was not a believer in state and local government in the way that we Tocquevillians tend to uh, elevate them and idealize them. Um, and in some respects, uh, Burke would have made a similar argument, or at least that a lot of government should happen at a relatively low level. Um, but of course, he was arguing at a different time and in, in, in a different place. Uh, and Britain just is much smaller. Uh, and so politics was a lot more personal, a lot more local. It's hard to know what he would have thought of a republic quite so large as, uh, as the United States. On that note of uncertainty, an appropriate note to end the discussion of Burke. Thank you very much.